Therapy is something that I know is very different from the perspective of, you know, it seems to be a very well accepted norm in the States, mm. which I think is a great thing, you know. But meanwhile, in the UK, it still feels very much taboo. Mm. You know, the whole area of mental health generally, I think, over here, and particularly men's mental health, it's starting to change. But there's still a lot of stigma associated with it over here. And, you know, I can speak personally for, for myself and with Jane, like counselling is something we've benefited from as a couple and as parents. But I think we're still in a, a small minority. Hello and welcome back to the Startup Dad podcast. This is the show where we dive deep into the lives of dads who are also leaders in the world of startups and business. I'm your host, Adam Fishman, and in today's episode, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Ben Williams. Ben is the former VP of product at Sneak, where he oversaw and approved upon their product-led growth engine and the developer journeys products. Prior to that, he was a VP of product at CloudBees. He now runs an advisory practice and a newsletter at plgeek.com. In case you can't tell by his accent, he is a resident of the UK and also a husband and father of two kids. In this episode, Ben opens up about the challenges and joys of being a dad, his early exposures to racism and his upbringing in a mixed-race family in the UK, and how his career couldn't possibly have prepared him for the roller coaster of fatherhood. He shares candidly about the sacrifices he's made to be more present in his children's lives, the support network he's built, and how it has helped him and his wife Jane through their journey as parents. This conversation provides a unique perspective and view into the life of a parent in the UK, and I am excited to share it with you today. Welcome, Ben Williams, to Startup Dad. Ben, it is so great to have you here. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Adam. It's great to catch up with you as always, and thanks for inviting me onto the show. I've been listening to the episodes that you've put out already, and I've already been, I think, very impressed with some of the folks that you've had on and how open they've been, how transparent they've been. You know, I've learned actually a lot from them. I've taken some much welcomed comfort that that everyone has their own struggles in this parenting thing as well. Yeah, I think that's the goal. Misery loves company, I guess. So, <laughs> so we're all learning and going through it yeah. together. Ben, I wanted to start and just ask you a little bit more about your background. So tell me about your professional background. Introduce yourself for folks who don't know what you've been up to over the last several years. Sure. I'll, I'll try and keep it relatively concise. So 25-year professional career, just a bit over that now. Really been focused on serving developers that whole time. The last 21 years of that in product and growth. So straight out of university back in 1997, I actually started a job as a solutions engineer at a small engineering tools company. I accepted a job as a developer out of uni for a multimedia company, but the solutions engineering gig was with a cool company. It was in Oxford, which was a nicer part of the country, and they wanted to pay me a bunch more. So as a recent graduate with kind of hefty student loan, that was a pretty nice bonus. After a couple of years there, I moved into a product role. Fast forward a couple of acquisitions later, I found myself in IBM in the rational software division. I learned a lot there, but eventually figured out that kind of mega scale enterprise just wasn't the best fit for me. 
and I left to lead product for the technology division of a Swiss fintech, which actually transpired as me planning and leading an internal DevOps transformation across thousands of globally distributed devs, building and running an entire DevOps platform and dev tooling group. And then after three years there, I joined one of our vendors who were a company called Cloudbees, best known at the time for being the enterprise Jenkins company. And shortly after that, I was given the opportunity to lead product growth and design there as a member of the exec team. Three years later, Sneak asked me to join them where I led product for everything related to PLG, developer experience, developer education. And then that brings us to October last year where I set up PL Geek, my advisory practice. Awesome. Awesome. So you've had a long and illustrious career. Do you think anything in your career could have prepared you for parenting? <laughs> no, is the short answer. <laughs> parenting is harder than anything else that I've done in my career, I'm sure. Oh, you're going to scare a lot of people who are listening at this point. <laughs> so, so, so let's transition to that, because that's what this show is all about. So tell uh, me a little bit about your life growing up. Where are you from originally? And what sort of family environment did you grow up in? Yeah, so I was born in a town called Preston, which is in the north of England. My mom and dad were, were married fairly young. They had a difficult time because it was a mixed race relationship. Like on their wedding night, they got told to leave the pub where they went to celebrate because they weren't welcome. Like that's the kind of environment it was there at, at that time. That was in the early 70s. And my dad was a civil engineer. And when I was very young, he got a job in Abu Dhabi. So we all moved over there. We were there for a couple of years before my parents split, and I ended up actually moving back to the UK with my dad, and my mum stayed over there in the Middle East, and both of them remarried. But growing up, I lived with my dad and stepmom in the UK. Uh, they had two more children, first my brother, who's six years younger than me, and then my sister, who's six years younger than my brother. So a fairly big kind of age gap between us. I think it was, for myself, it was a pretty strict parenting environment. I think my folks chilled out considerably over the years and my brother and sister got a far more laid back approach to how they were brought up than I did. But at the same time, you know, I, I think I had a very privileged upbringing in as much as, you know, I was always very well loved, very well looked after. And it was my, I think some of my dad's passions that actually set me off in the career that I have. Like, you know, I think maybe we were seven or eight, I was seven or eight years old when dad bought his Sinclair ZX81 and, you know, he'd buy these early computing magazines and we'd sit together and type in the programs from the magazines and learn to run, you know, video games like Pong and Asteroids. And, you know, dad was just really into it all. And that kind of passion rubbed off on me. I had a bunch of early home computers like a Sinclair Spectrum. We had a was it an Acorn Electron, a BBC Model B. And it was the kind of those machines that first taught me uh, how to code, you know, and before long, I'm writing programs to predict football match results and getting people to place bets for me in the bookies in, in town and so on. But yeah, that's what it was like. I ended up going to study computer science. I think it was probably an obvious choice for me based on kind of some of those passions that, that I developed during my upbringing. But I went to the University of Manchester, 
which has a great CS department and a rich history of computing, of course. But all of that actually was pretty irrelevant because honestly, I didn't really give it my all studying. I did, I think, just enough to get decent grades while having, you know, a lot of fun <laughs> over the <laughs> years I was there. And maybe, yeah, maybe I'll give you a little bit of context about why it was like that. So racism was, you know, a constant backdrop to my childhood. You know, I shared about the racism that my mum and dad faced when they were first married. But when I was growing up, and I, I grew up in the middle of, of England in a county called uh, Shropshire, you know, it wasn't something that I experienced every day, but it was something that I became fearful of every day. And so when I got to Manchester, it was kind of liberating for me. I was all of a sudden in this kind of big multicultural melting pot of diversity, which was in really stark contrast to how things were back home where, you know, my dad was literally the only non-white guy in the village and all the surrounding villages. And, wow. you know, I don't remember the, the, our home environment being a particularly emotionally open one. You know, there was lots of love. But it wasn't one where, you know, we'd regularly share how we were feeling and that sort of thing. You know, my folks were kind of very much working class backgrounds, came from the north of England, just very matter of fact about everything. And I think my way of dealing things was really just keeping a lot of stuff bottled up. And that's something that, you know, I still struggle with to this day. Wow, I had no idea. I think we talk a lot about racism in the United States. And then you just think in a lot of places, like you don't think that it exists, or at least I don't, in a place like England. But it, it maybe it's the proper accent and things like that. But it turns out it does, and it shaped your life in, in, in many yeah, ways. Sure. Wow. Well, I think we're going to come back a little bit later in the show to talking about emotional intelligence and that sort of thing. But it's a really good segue to talking about your family now. So you have a partner and two yep. kids. How did you meet your partner? And tell me a little bit about your kids. Yep. So my wife and I, like Jane is my wife, we met on a dating app back oh, nice. in, in 2012. Do you want to guess which one it was? Hinge. No, I don't know. No. There was one, <laughs> one. I don't even know if it's still around. It was something called Plenty of Fish. Oh, I've heard of that one. That's a great yeah. one. Yeah. So that that's how we met. We got married in 2014. Our eldest, Leo, he was born in 2016, so he's just turned seven. We had our daughter, Ella, in 2018, so she'll be five in a couple of months and going to school along with her brother soon. Wow, that's an exciting transition. You'll have two kids and two kids in school that are growing up. Does it make you feel old watching your kids hit that milestone of going to school? I feel old on a daily basis, so... Yeah, there's, there's lots of things that make me feel old. I think that's just one more to add to the list, yeah. So tell me a little bit about Jane. I don't know if she works outside the home or if she has a career, but tell me a little bit about what she does. So before we had kids, Jane was a HR business partner for Fujitsu. But since we had kids, she's basically run our household. You know, that's been a big sacrifice for her that, that I greatly appreciate. We both always wanted to have children we didn't actually believe that it would be possible for you know the first part of our relationship like jane had known for years that she had something called pcos polycystic ovary syndrome and the chances of her being able to get pregnant were very slim so 
No, we tried for a while before we sought medical help. And Jane had, you know, both surgical procedures and pharmaceutical treatment for the PCOS. And I look back and it was a pretty stressful time. You know, the whole thing had to be pretty precise in terms of timing, which obviously took much of the romance away from it all. Yeah. It brought a lot of stress to us at that time. And, you know, it didn't work out. And we eventually went down the IVF route. And that was quite a long and drawn out process itself. But remarkably, actually, two days before we were due to have the first round of IVF, we found out we were pregnant. You know, I don't know, don't know what it was, maybe just the fact that we were a lot more relaxed and less stressed at that point. But yeah, uh, the rest is history, I say. <laughs> yeah, that that's an amazing story. What a journey to become parents. You know, thanks for sharing that on the podcast. I think what's interesting is, you know, a lot of people don't talk openly about that sort of that journey. And yet a lot of people have to go down that path. And so, so thanks for helping to normalize that. And it worked out. You've got two healthy, happy kids, as far as I know. So most of the time they're happy, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about the earliest memory that you have after you became a dad for the first time. Yeah, I guess it would be, um, you know, in the hospital immediately, immediately after Leo was born, before he was born, obviously going to the hospital, we picked out his first set of clothes and it was my responsibility to, once he'd got cleaned up, put his first set of clothes on and just remember him kind of looking up at me. And obviously everything he sees is just a blur at that point. But I remember him looking up at me and just having this overwhelming sense of joy and pride. And at the same time, an immediate sense of, you know, you know, I'm your protector. It's my job now to, it's my responsibility to keep you safe. And yeah, I guess that's my first memory. Wow. This sort of simultaneous feeling of like extreme anxiety and fear coupled with love. Yeah, that's- Intoxicating mix. It is a a funny question, but you know, in the US, this is going to show my ignorance of international customs and things like that. In the US, you know, parenting is sort of the process of pregnancy and getting ready for a baby is this whole drawn out process. You take parenting class or birthing classes and it's this whole sort of system around it. Is it the same in, in the UK? Like, did you and your wife go to a birthing class to know what to expect or, or are they just, hey, good luck? No, we, we absolutely did. There was this thing called NCT, um, which I think stands for the National Child Care Trust, I want to say. They're a charity and their vision is that, you know, everyone who becomes a parent feels confident and connected and safe or something like that. And they've got this slogan and, you know, one of the main things they do is is run these antenatal courses. So I'm guessing there's the similar thing that you're talking about in the US. So you sign up and you do these this eight-week class, along with seven other sets of soon-to-be parents, all from the same area and folks who are having their first child basically at the same time as you. And the class is, you know, super informative and help you better understand and, and prepare for the practical side of kind of late pregnancy of birth and the first few weeks of care. But more than anything, you know, you meet these other folks who are basically in the same boat as you and you have a laugh as you're kind of learning about what's to come because you know a lot of it is like 
horrifying and comical. And, <laughs> you know, I remember this one particular session where our facilitator of this class gave basically a, a live simulation of labor. So the contractions, the breathing, the screams, the facial expressions, everything. Wow. And, you know, she was entirely serious. This was like, she was showing us exactly like what this was going to be like, but we were all just rolling around the room, you know, in stitches of laughter. <laughs> but yeah, we were, I think it, for us, the learning about the practical side of things was a minor benefit. Actually, you know, we were really lucky through that to to meet a really wonderful group of people who we're still all regularly in contact with. We get together as a big group quite often with the kids and we get to separately get together separately as the mums and the dads. We have nights out, weekends away and it's a bit different now as kind of they're more just a group of friends, but definitely in the first couple of years they were a really invaluable part of our whole kind of support network as well. That's great. My wife and I joined a new parent support group after our first kid was born and are still friends with all those people, even though our daughter's about to turn 11. We don't see yeah. them as much as we used to because life happens, but what a special thing to be able to go through that with, with some other folks and end up, especially people doing it for the first time. You know, everyone's kind of wide-eyed and curious and yeah. So very important question. The person who ran the class and did the birthing simulation, how close did that mirror the actual the actual birth? Were you, do you feel like you're well prepared for that? Thankfully, I wasn't laughing in the same way. <laughs> <laughs> Probably the real deal. wouldn't have been a good idea. Uh, I don't think it would have gone down that well. No, it was just comical. It was, it was funny. Yeah. 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 So you know, ahead of the pod, we did a little prep and you talked about one of the topics of kind of being, becoming less selfish and making sacrifices as a parent or just the need to do that. What are some of the sacrifices that you've had to make as a dad? Yeah, I mean, when you're single or even when you're in a relationship, but with no kids around, you've got a lot of time to do stuff yourself, right? For me, like, a lot of my life, I was very much into cycling. I had hobbies like making music and so on. These things kind of pretty time consuming hobbies. So I'd ride my bike two to 300 miles every week. I'd be out on wow. all day rides at the weekend, early morning rides, evening rides, club rides. It's obviously not something that's super compatible with raising a couple of, of young kids. I still ride my bike, but mainly just the indoor trainer. You can see it be behind me, but you know, for an hour at a time here and there. But fitness is still something that's like really important for my mental health. It, my mental health definitely suffers when I'm not exercising a lot. Mm. So I found other ways, like I do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu now, which I can fit more easily around the parenting schedule. But I don't know if it was a feeling of having to make sacrifices wasn't something that I did begrudgingly. It was just like, well, look, priorities have changed. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm not, I'm just not going to be able to spend my time the same way that I did in the past. But I think it took me a while to, to get to that point, to, to figure that out. Like for a good few months, I'd be trying to find ways to fit it all in. Like, yeah, I can do this and this and this, right. And you know, I can be pretty determined and stubborn. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, <laughs> I mustn't let my wife hear this podcast now. <laughs> Yeah, I can be determined and stubborn and, and hadn't yet 
got a strong appreciation for how hard parenting would be for me or for Jane. So eventually I kind of had to admit to myself that something had to give. Do you think that cycling is something that you'll come back into later and maybe involve your kids in if they can cover 200 miles in a week? <laughs> I don't know about that, honestly. Like I actually lost my passion for going out on the roads. Mm. We had a neighbor who very experienced cyclist and he was going down a hill and car was coming up and ended up hitting the car head on and he survived but is in a coma for eight months lost his arm he's had a lot of problems since then and it you know ultimately you can have you can be the best bike handler in the world but you know it's other folks on the road in big metal heavy things that yeah uh, that can change your life instantly and so the idea of you know, encouraging my kids to, to do that is less appealing, but I do like to take them out on the mountain bike or Leo, at least he's kind of got to that age where he can pedal for a little while without saying, dad, I'm tired. Right? So I take him out on the mountain bike on, on safe trails and so on. But yeah, That's great. Yeah. I don't feel like I know a single cyclist who has done the hobby for so long unscathed, right? There's like injury happens in your friend's case, a pretty serious injury. But I think that's really interesting. I've also noticed myself just becoming more risk averse for physical, certain types of physical activity as I've had kids and as I feel like other people are dependent on me. I used to ski a lot, still ski, but I'm much more cautious about where I go on the mountain and things like that. It just sort of changes you when you realize that other people depend on you now. It's really crazy. Like I, mountain biking, I like, a couple of years before Leo was born, I taught myself how to backflip and I used to do silly things. I was not as good as I wished I was and as other folks were, but I had no, no kind of consideration for my own physical <laughs> safety at, at that yeah. point. And as soon as he was born, literally like just something just changed immediately. And I just had no desire to put myself in those kind of situations anymore. Yes. I imagine no backflips with Leo when the two of you are going down the mountain. <laughs> no, exactly. It's probably a good idea. Yeah. Jane, if Jane is listening, she'll appreciate that. I've become like hyper risk aware about everything as well. Like sharp corners in the house or when Leo is jumping off the sofa and going near his sister. Like I, it's like these spidey senses that are just constantly, everything I see is danger and I'm trying to yeah. find ways to mitigate it. Yeah. It's like dad, it's dad sense, right? It's <laughs> some sort of dad dar that you have that's yeah. like constantly swiveling. So we're going to come back to this topic, but I want to deviate for a second because again, sort of showing my ignorance around life in the UK versus life in the US. And I, I just recently spent just a couple of days in the UK and had an awesome time. England is a wonderful place. I can't wait to get back there. But I'm curious in your observation, and I don't know how much you know about parenting in the US or how much time you spent here, but how do you think parenting is different in the UK from the US? Yeah. So I don't have much experience at all of, of parenting in the US. So it's hard for me to give a well-informed opinion here, but... I like one, uninformed opinions too. Those are great. <laughs> I guess one thing, and you know, with the ages of our kids, it's not something I've really had to think about too much, but I have this feeling that there's less of an emphasis on academic performance in the UK. Mm. It feels like in the US, 
like culturally there's this there's just more value placed on competition and achievement and success you know there's all of this thing like even like things like spelling bees and things like that they just don't exist over here or not to my knowledge at, at least right and feels just a lot more laid back in the UK with regards to that and perhaps a greater focus on holistic development social skills and all that kind of extracurricular stuff but I don't know maybe I'm wrong what do you think you know well I have the opposite where I don't know very much about the UK and parenting in the UK but I can appreciate that there are definitely my kids are participating in spelling bees and I mean they're not doing very well because it turns out they're very hard. I don't know that I would do very well, but there's an intensity here. I think it yeah. also depends on where you live in the U.S. and how overachieving your the parents are and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, it's just a generalization. I'm sure there will inevitably be many exceptions, as there always are. One thing as well, though, therapy is something that I know is very different from the perspective of you know it seems to be a very well accepted norm in the states. Which I think is a great thing, you know. But meanwhile, in the UK, it still feels very much taboo. Mm. You know, the whole area of mental health generally, I think, over here, and particularly men's mental health, it's starting to change, but there's still a lot of stigma associated with it over here. And, you know, I can speak personally for, for myself and with Jane, like counseling is something we've benefited from as a couple and as parents. But I think we're still in a, a small minority and it's usually seen as something that is a short-term fix to a problem rather than, I think in the US it's more like, well, this is just part of my support network. It's always going to be there and I'm going to leverage it to just kind of help maintain balance. And that's just not the case here. That's really interesting. I always feel like it's sort of the opposite, at least my you know interpretation, because you know Europe, Europe is so you know, supportive with healthcare and things like that. But that's really yeah. interesting about maybe it's a little behind the times in terms of accepting things like therapy and counseling and stuff like that. Really good insight. On that note, I wanted to talk a little bit about emotional intelligence because that was a topic that you brought mm -hmm. up. So you have one school-age kid and about to be another school-age kid. And in the States here, I've noticed... And maybe this existed when I was a kid, but I don't think so. I, I've noticed a really big emphasis in schools on fostering emotional intelligence in kids. A lot of conflict resolution, a lot of talking about feelings as a form of conflict resolution. And I've noticed this a lot since my kids started, you know, preschool and kindergarten and later in elementary school now. I'm curious if you observe that with Leo in schools in the UK, and then also how you try to foster emotional intelligence in your kids. To the first question, uh, I don't think there's enough of it in the school where, where Leo goes, at least. I don't, I, I don't know if I can generalize across all schools in the UK, but I think it's something that there is perhaps less focus on here. On this overall subject area, I've really got to kind of give praise to my wife here. I mentioned earlier, kind of my own background and childhood means I struggle with opening up a lot and I'm, I'm constantly trying to work on. She's very different in that regard and I'm thankful to her for kind of reading the majority of our parenting books and the ones 
particularly that have helped us acknowledge the importance of developing emotional intelligence in in the kids. So there's a there's a bunch of stuff we do, but you know fundamentally, I think it comes down to a couple of things. So first, wanting them to have an outlet for their feelings, and second, recognizing that their behavior is ultimately driven by how they're feeling. So if we're able to understand that better, if we can help them understand that better for themselves, then we can help them cope with the various situations that they're going to encounter better than otherwise. So we we do a bunch of stuff like we encourage them to draw or paint about how they're feeling and we talk with them about it. And we have these colorful picture-based feelings cards that they can use to tell us how they're feeling when words might be difficult for them to get out, or they might not even yet have the vocabulary to to articulate what they're feeling. We try to model healthy emotional expression and regulation, and we don't always do a great job of that, but we try. We try to help them empathize with others, to your point about conflict resolution, like looking at things from different perspectives, help them think through what are the reasons behind this disagreement that they're having? Like, how is this other person thinking about things? How are they feeling? How are they mm-hmm. seeing things? They're still very young, so so a lot of it's pretty basic stuff. But I think it's important to to do this early. And the basics lay the building blocks for the rest of their lives. So getting that right is really important. How do your kids get along with each other? They're about the same (laughs) age difference as my kids, although my oldest is a girl and my youngest is a boy. But we were certainly exposed to them being in close proximity to each other for several weeks on our recent vacation. And they did pretty (laughs) well, but uh, never perfect. So I'm curious how your kids get along and does conflict resolution come into play in your home environment between the two of them? I mean, obviously, I'll start by saying, you know, they love each other dearly. They dote on each other. At the same time, they find ways to, let's say, wind each other up. Mm-hmm. You know, there's actually some deeper rooted stuff there as well. Like both of her pregnancies, Jane was extremely like nauseous and physically sick throughout. Mm. So, like she had terrible pregnancies. But what that meant was that, you know, for Leo, who had been kind of the sole center of attention for the first couple of years of his life, when Jane became pregnant with Ella, all of a sudden she couldn't give him some of that attention that she had. And when Ella came along, obviously it got a little bit worse. And so there's been this kind of jealousy thing that that we've dealt with that is still there and, and manifests in in a few different ways. But you know, we've been working on that for some while and things are getting better there. But in terms of how they're getting on, that's this kind of underlying thing that we're just trying to kind of deal with almost perpetually. But like I say, they love each other. They care for each other. They fight as all siblings do. <laughs> yeah. Ella is actually possibly the worst of, of them both in terms of antagonizing. But, <laughs> yeah. It's always the youngest, the youngest. That's funny. I wanted to transition a little bit and talk about support structures. So England is known for its very quaint villages. And then they say that it takes a village to raise a child. So Mm -hmm. you talked a little bit about sort of the parenting classes that you went through and building that support structure. But tell me about the support network that you felt you've needed as a parent. And how have you relied on other folks to help you in your parenting journey? 
So the NCT thing was, I think, a big part of it, for sure. My folks don't live near, they're like three hours away. And my mum, she's back from the Middle East now, but lives again some way away. But we're fortunate enough that Jane's parents are nearby. They're only like 10, 15 minutes away. They have been, you know, an incredible help throughout the last seven or so years. You know, all the obvious things like, childcare, but, you know, having folks to talk with, they've just been there whenever we've needed them. And we're both very grateful for that. So I'd say they're the biggest part of that. School has also provided, you know, a good network of folks, all the folks that are in Leo's year group and now upcoming Ella's year group as she'll be going to school. Generally, we're in an area where folks like to kind of build a community around those sorts mm -hmm. of things and go through these experiences together. And we've lent on that quite a lot. So we've met a lot of friends through that and to the point that, you know, we're able to just deal with these new experiences as a collective, which makes it slightly less daunting. Yeah, that's good. We've found that the school community is wonderful. I mean, it's our primary community now as our kids have gotten yeah. older because everyone's living the same shared experience for the most part. Yeah. So in terms of lessons you've learned as a parent, have you developed any, I mean, in your professional career, you have tons of frameworks and guardrails and things like that. But in your family life, have you developed any particular frameworks or guardrails for parenting? Yeah, I wish I had as many frameworks in parenting that I have in product and mm. growth. Maybe it would be a little bit easier if I could draw on some of those. <laughs> Recently, we've really focused on spending one-to-one -one time with each of them, particularly with Leo and myself. So we found that me spending extended time with him at the weekends has really helped his overall temperament and behavior. At that age, I think, you know, male role models start to become bit more important to boys. And so we have this regular play day at a local place called Brickies. It's basically a big place full of Lego and you book in for a couple of hours, you get given these build challenges and, you know, we get to be creative together and we get to work together on, on a challenge. So that's really fun. And as I said, in, in a fairly short amount of time, we've seen that manifest like materially in a noticeable way in his behavior. So, so that's been really great. Structure as well is something that we found to be very important. Again, particularly with, with Leo, he finds it a little bit more difficult to handle when things change. So we tried to help him with that just in terms of how to be more open to change. We know he finds a lot of comfort in routine. And so we, you yeah. know, we try to cater to that, you know, when we don't, we know that he'll start to feel a little bit more anxious and that starts to bleed through in, in, in how he is. So just having a structure and a routine around things really helps. That's pretty great. So one-on-one -on -one time and creating structure and routine and sort of guiding him through transitions and things like that. Yep. Super important. Those are both the things that I try to do relatively successfully some of the time. <laughs> <laughs> this Bricky's place sounds amazing, by the way. I need to figure out if there's something like this near me. It sounds really fun. It's fantastic. Uh, I've never seen any more of them anywhere else in the country, but the way yeah. it's set up, it's so well organized. They've got like 
complete video stations where they've got all recorded videos, interactive videos that give you the challenges. And it looks like it's something made by Lego, but it's not. I hope I'm not getting wow. this company in trouble now and infringing trademarks and everything. But, <laughs> um, but it's amazing. Yeah. Wow. That does sound really fun. Maybe you're privileged to have the only version of it on the planet. So yeah, on um, I'm going to look into this though. We'll link it for anyone who may live near you. They can find it in the show notes. <laughs> you know, I find for better or for worse, that partnership is super important when you have kids, but it's also hard for two parents to agree a hundred percent of the time. So <laughs> I'm curious if there's something that you and your wife, Jane, don't agree on when it comes to parenting. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> no. Care to elaborate? <laughs> Generally, I'm I'm the stricter of the two of us. Oh, you're uh, bad Jane cop. Bi yeah, Jane biases towards being a little bit more lenient. I think maybe reflective of our own upbringings. That's definitely caused us to clash at times, and uh, it obviously doesn't also help the kids. You know, when they get inconsistency, right? So sure, we try to agree on some of the more high frequency problem situations that mm -hmm. that we'll encounter and how we'll approach them, like what the warning should be, what any appropriate punishment should be, and so on. Mm -hmm. I think where things start to come undone a little bit is where, you know, when we're at these higher stress levels and we maybe deviate from what we've talked about. So like in the heat of the moment, I might devise a punishment just in the moment that is kind of maybe shooting us in the foot because <laughs> I don't know, maybe to uphold it, it might mean burdening Jane mm. with looking after one of the kids instead of having the hour off that she'd planned. Cause I've told Leo, if you do that again, you're not going to jujitsu or something like that. Right. Mm. And she's is kind of perhaps an inappropriate punishment. Dinner time is something we've had disagreements on in the past too. Like if they, I guess I'm generally, more firm about their things like if you don't eat your dinner, there's no snacks before bed. Okay. Mm. That's, that's the rule. But mm -hmm. if they don't eat their dinner and we get to bedtime and they start playing up and they say they're hungry and it looks like bedtime's going to be this long drawn out thing and we're feeling particularly stressed or tired, then, you know, Jane's more likely to say, okay, I'll make you some toast. Right. So I don't know. There's things like that. I actually, was it Adam? Adam Grenier, who talked about that kind of combined energy score yes. as a means to, yeah. So I found that fascinating and in retrospect, really obvious, but just brilliant. You know, this means to help each other know where you are on any given day and when and where each of you might need to lean in more or less to support each other and, and provide more consistency for the kids. Yeah. One of those things that kind of, I wish I'd thought of or been told about a long time yeah. ago. But yeah, we try to find ways to have kind of healthy middle ground in these areas where we instinctively might have different approaches, but when you're stressed and when you're tired, it's just hard to always get it right. Yeah. I mean, much like professionally, right? Like that alignment's hard when one or the other is not at their best, which is pretty often when you're a parent. <laughs> so yeah. you're very rarely at a hundred percent. So Speaking of which, I'm curious about if you can think of a mistake that you feel like you've made as a father or something that you feel like you messed up on one time. Yeah, a million things, but I guess think, thinking it would be easy. <laughs> I think it would be easy, like thinking that 
I'd somehow naturally just be a great dad instead of something that I'd have to really work at, you know, something that would, I didn't think it would be something that would find new ways to challenge and test me pretty much every mm -hmm. single day. And so I think that's at a macro level, the biggest mistake. Yeah. I think that is also a common one, whether or not people want to admit it. It's not easy. Parenting takes real work. Um, like genuinely before, I, I just thought, you know, just <laughs> I'd have everything, right? Right. I've got all these tools and being a nope. dad, I was made for it, right? <laughs> yeah. Sure. That's, you know, that's been one of my struggles too, is I feel much more comfortable professionally than often I do as a dad, because I feel yes. like I'm, we talk about, you know, your comfort zone, right? Professionally. And maybe you want to be just a little bit outside of your comfort zone to push you. But sometimes with personal and parenting stuff, I'm way outside my comfort zone. Right. Yeah. I'm the opposite of what you want to be. And that's a uh, different that's a country. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> so when you were at Sneak, your kids were a bit younger. I mean, that's, you know, October is only six, seven, eight months ago, but still that's a big difference when your kids are their age. I'm curious how you were able to integrate. I imagine Sneak was a pretty fast paced, high pressure environment. You're growing like gangbusters as a fast rising company. How did you integrate that fast pace and high pressure and the work you're doing at Sneak with balancing your family responsibilities? And the answer may be not very well, but <laughs> because we've all been there, but I'm curious to hear how you did it. Oh man, the honest answer. And you know, this is just my own personal experience. I found it really hard to fit together the whole startup hustle thing mm. with parenting. You know, I definitely made compromises regretfully. I still feel a ton of guilt about this. You know, my family suffered more than my job did, which is, you know, it's, that's hard for me to say. Right. Yeah. And that was, I think at most of that was really before sneak, you know, my VP product role at Cloudbees. That was my first like proper exec role. Mm. And there was a bunch going on, right? Imposter syndrome was a big thing for me. And so the fear of getting things wrong led me to want to work just crazy hard. But more than that, you know, I, I genuinely loved the role as well. It was exciting. I was getting a buzz from it. I was traveling and away from home maybe two to three weeks out of every five. Oh, wow. I earned a shit ton of Avios points. Um, <laughs> but I, I missed a lot of meals, right? I lost, missed a lot of bath times, of bedtimes. And, you know, of course I missed being away from Jane and the kids, but I had this internal narrative that was going on that, you know, I was doing it all for them. Yeah. Right. And that was a hundred percent true. I genuinely was, but that doesn't mean that was what they wanted or needed from me as a partner, as a husband, as a yeah. father. So that was, you know, that was difficult. And at the same time, I felt a lot of stress in the role as well, you know, mm. partly just what comes with that kind of role and partly me putting undue pressure and, and expectation on myself. So I wasn't physically with my family as much as I should have been. And then when I was with them, they just, they didn't get the best version of me either. And regretfully, you know, I didn't realize how much the whole situation was affecting them until much later than I wished. And yeah. 
you know, it actually turned out that COVID was an unexpected blessing for us. You know, suddenly I couldn't travel. And funnily enough, everything at work still went on, right? The wheels didn't fall <laughs> off. And yeah. Now I was physically present, which was a huge relief for Jane, really needed me around to help with all the day-to-day -day stuff, bringing up two crazy little ones. And <laughs> and it was in the middle of, of COVID then that I joined Sneak. And that was interesting because I guess I was physically home still because of COVID, but it was a new gig. Yeah. with a ton of expectation. I obviously wanted to do really well. And that had me working longer hours again, taking a bunch of, you know, psychological weight on my shoulders and mm -hmm. bringing more stress into the family environment than I really should have. And Sneak was growing so quickly that, like you said, it was kind of relentless. Yeah. I definitely over time, the couple of years there, found ways to create better boundaries, like just as simple as like, this is my user manual. This is how I work. These are my kind of time zones. So that helped with managing the team around me, but I wasn't so good at perhaps managing up in that regard from an expectations perspective. But yeah, I found ways to create better boundaries, but honestly, me going out on my own on the whole solopreneur journey, that was the next step really in me taking back control and prioritizing what's important for us as a family right now. Yeah. I was going to ask you about that decision. And it sounds like you've been able to kind of carve out more family time and reduce stress, reduce that sort of psychological burden. Have you found that being sort of, I mean, I'm sure it creates its own stress, of course, yes. but have you found that's been a better balance for you and sort of where your family is and where you are professionally and that sort of thing? Yeah, a hundred percent. And there's always many things you're juggling, right? So not having back-to-back -back Zoom calls immediately creates this relief of fatigue that you just didn't realize was there or was because of that, at least. Yeah. So that, that made a huge difference. My goal, actually, when going full-time in the advising thing was actually that full-time would translate into four days a week and I'd get kind of three really high-quality days with family. It's still a goal. I'm not there yet. I think I took on too much at first from the perspective of, you know, I've had a full advising roster since the beginning. And at the same time, I was constantly taking on like new uh, inbound, basically, of folks who were interested in working with me. And I, I found it very interesting to learn about their problems and challenges and give them some free advice along the way. But that was then starting to take a bunch of my calendar time, yeah. started the newsletter. And I'm, then I'm all of a sudden I'm writing not just one newsletter post a week, but two. And and so and you're actually being, a you're few being interviewed ago, on podcasts and podcasts. Uh, exactly. Right, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Um, so, so a few weeks ago, I actually kind of decided to to rein that back a little bit and take a few less inbound requests and do less podcasts, only the ones who, uh, who are really special. And, oh, thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Write a little bit less on the newsletter and LinkedIn and stuff like that. And, and that's worked out really well. And I feel I'm in a good place now and my family appreciate it for sure. That's great to hear. I wanted to ask you one more thing. I want to come all the way back to something that we talked about from your childhood. So you mentioned you dealt with a lot of racism, being a mixed race kid. Mm -hmm. And I, wanna, I wanted to ask you if that comes into conversation with your kids or maybe how your kids are, if they've had to navigate anything like that. Now, they're pretty young, so maybe not yet. 
But how do you talk about race with your kids or do you? And how do you see that being part of their lives as they get older? Yeah. So fortunately, they haven't had to deal with any of that yet. And, you know, I hope that is the case for as long as it possibly can be. One of the most beautiful things about children is this colorblindness, mm. right? They go to their classroom and they're around folks from all sorts of different ethnic backgrounds and they just don't see it. They just yeah. see another little person there. And that's that's incredible. We have started to teach the kids a little bit about their heritage, about mm -hmm. you know where their great-grandfather came from, which was Jamaica. And I designed a little poster with Leo on the computer on his on his door and like started to tell him a little bit about Jamaican culture and introduced him to reggae music. And, oh, cool. And so on his poster, he wanted a picture of Bob Marley and him standing there and a map of Jamaica and pointing to the point on Jamaica, Savannah Lamar, where his, his great-grandfather was from and the Jamaican flag and stuff. And he's got that on his door. That's his door sign now. This is oh, Leo's cool. room and so on. So, so we started kind of helping them understand some of that. Ella's a little bit too young. She's still just yeah. mainly about princesses, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that, that's great. I'm glad that you can connect Leo to, you know, where he's from originally or where, where his family's yeah. from. So, okay. All right. Rapid fire. So here's how rapid fire works. I'm going to ask you some questions and you are just going to answer with the first thing that comes to mind. Are you ready? Here we go. The first question, do you watch Peppa Pig with your kids? I used to. We had tons of Peppa Pig's books too. They've both grown out of it now, but they they still think all daddies are experts. <laughs> Peppa Pig is the only British show, British cartoon that I'm aware of. So that's why I had to ask it. <laughs> what is the most useless parenting product that you have ever purchased? I feel like I've generally done okay on this front. I, I quite enjoy researching and reading reviews and all that stuff. And I think most of the things we bought have lived up to expectations. There was this one one thing that, that we had for them as babies. It was this kind of little string pouch that you would put fruit in and they were meant to kind of suck on it and get the flavor of it without risk of choking. Get really good reviews on Amazon and everything, but both our kids hated them. It was like this stringy thing in their mouth. I'm like, what's that? Love that stringy fruit tasting thing. <laughs> what is the most frustrating thing that has ever happened to you as a dad? I seem to spend a lot more time in queues than I ever did before <laughs> kids. And that's pretty annoying for me. I don't like yep. queuing. Yep. How about favorite ages for your kids? I'm really enjoying their current ages right now as, you know, I think their personalities are really starting to shine and they're exploring their interests. So. Great. What about least favorite ages for your kids? I'd say a couple of years back for us. I don't know if it was necessarily an age-related thing, but we just had a really difficult period where like every single bedtime was just a major struggle. So Oof. I kind of, that's the association I've got there and it's oh. not fun. No, not at all. How many dad jokes do you tell on average each day? Uh, at least a couple, usually to Jane, who inevitably <laughs> will respond with a facepalm. <laughs> What is the most embarrassing thing that you've ever done in front of your kids? 
they're still young, so I don't think they get embarrassed too easily. In terms of my own embarrassment, maybe like dad dancing on stage with them on holiday, that kind of thing. Like, yeah, <laughs> Love <don't> that. that. <laughs> Have you ever pretended to be asleep to avoid a middle of the night wake up? No comment. <laughs> what is the most absurd thing your kid has ever asked you to buy for them? Ella asked us to buy a toilet brush that she saw. <laughs> she didn't really know what it was, but for some reason liked the look of it. And this morning, actually, she asked us to buy a new house because she didn't want to eat breakfast in this house anymore. <laughs> that is a perfect five-year-old toilet brush. And new house, because you just can't eat breakfast in this house anymore. That's amazing. Speaking of toys, what is your worst experience assembling a kid's toy? That, that's easy. There's two that, that, that come to mind. The first is this Playmobil princess castle. And I feel myself kind of tightening up as I talk about this, but it had like a million pieces and just oh. the worst instructions. And it was actually Ella's fourth birthday and we were away on a family holiday and it took me and my brother two hours working together to get this thing built. And, you know, it's so big, you can't really move it around. So it was assembled for like two days while we were there. And since we've come back, it's not got built again. So it lives in a box now in all its pieces and Ella just pulls out bits of it to play with every now and again oh my god um, and then the other would be a wooden swing and, and slide in our garden and you know, it wasn't particularly difficult to build but I paid a premium for this thing like it was a, an expensive thing and when it was delivered like i i had to cut the wood down to the right size <laughs> which just pissed me off so <laughs> you would think with something priced so so <laughs> much you, you wouldn't have to do manual that kind of manual exactly. labor and like saw it. Exactly. You know? that, what yeah. do they do in the factory? Clearly not that. Yeah. How many hours of sleep do you actually get in a given evening? Usually between five and six, I can function Whew. pretty well. Okay, I cannot. I need it. I need like seven minimum. Have you ever eaten something off the floor using the five second rule? Of course. You just give it a quick blow to get any germs off, and then you're okay. Of course, because blowing on food is the thing that, that sanitizes it. So Exactly. How often do you tell your kids back-in-my-day kind of stories? Not enough. I think we spoil them too much. Yeah. And then last question. Do they have... This is a two-parter. Do they have minivans in the UK, and would you ever purchase one? We don't really refer to them as minivans. People carriers, I think we we call them. Okay. Um, so we, we do have them here. They're not as popular, I think, as a family car. SUVs are far more common. Mm -hmm. I'm a former petrol head turned big fan of electric vehicles. I've driven electric vehicles for the last five years now. I actually really love the Volkswagen ID Buzz. I don't know if oh, yeah. you've seen that. It's like the modern reincarnation of the camper van. Yeah. I love the looks. I love the practicality, but the range isn't great. But once they solve that in a few years, I'll definitely consider that form factor. So, yeah. so yes, is the answer, but probably not the minivans as you're thinking of. Yeah. Right? I've so. been waiting for that electric VW to come to the States forever. You folks in the UK always get things first when it comes to climate-friendly vehicles. So, yeah, awesome. Well, Ben, that is the end of our rapid-fire round. Thank you so much for joining 
Startup Dad today. It was wonderful to have you. I appreciate everything that you shared and our listeners will too. And hopefully this recording does not lead to any arguments between you and Jane. (laughs) Thank you. I hope so too. Thanks for having me, Adam. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Startup Dad. This one was a conversation with Ben Williams. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe, share, and leave me a review. It'll help other people find this podcast. Startup Dad is a Fishman AF production with editing support from Tommy Heron. You can stay up to date on all my thoughts on growth, product, and parenting by subscribing to the Fishman AF newsletter at www.fishmanafnewsletter.com. Thanks for listening.